All right, Genesis chapter 1, verse 23, through chapter 2, verse 3. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of the tree-yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would help us to understand and appreciate all that you have done and all that you will do and all that you are doing to create man in your image and your likeness, that we might ever look to Christ in all things and never uh, grow faint uh, in our hope for the glory that shall follow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I had this morning our deacon read for us, uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. And those are rather unpleasant verses to read, but they describe the world that we live in today. I have shared with people... um, with respect to the things that the Bible says, that what you read in the Bible and what you see out in the world have to agree one with another. If that's not the case, then the Bible is not true. And I have people tell me all the time, you know, why would a loving God do this, that, or the other thing? Because they're making observations uh, in terms of what they see out in the world, what they see on TV, read in the newspaper, and they're like, that's just a disconnect between what I'm seeing and what I think God is like, what his characteristics and attributes are like. But when you read the Bible, you'll find that what you see out the window is what you read in the Bible, because God has ordained all things for his glory, and what we're witnessing in the world is very much um, what is spoken about in the Bible. And so um, what we see here in Genesis chapter 1 is that God made man in his image and gave some simple instructions in terms of what man is supposed to do and what man has um, what God is doing in man. So everything seems to be going okay until you get to Genesis chapter 3, and then after Genesis chapter 3, it's murder, mayhem, and misery 
all the way up until the day that the Lord is going to come. There is death everywhere you look on this earth. Uh, but that's not the way it started. Um, by way of example, last night one of the neighbor's dog killed a deer in, uh, in our neighborhood. And so we're up, getting up at night and we're watching a deer die because of what a neighbor dog has done. So death is everywhere. You cannot get away from it. Um, it's been ordained by God um, to get us to glory. It is part of the process. We know that the Lord had to go to the cross and that he had to die um, for the sins of his people, and it's part of the process. So I want us to appreciate that, and you can see that right here in Genesis chapter 1. So death is, um, is everywhere in the scripture, uh, but again, that's not the way it started. In verse 31 of Genesis chapter 1, the Lord says, I saw everything, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So I need to share this with you, is that only God knows what is good. Only God can truly declare what is good. We know that God's thoughts are not our thoughts, neither are his ways our ways. He says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways, and his thoughts than our thoughts. So with respecting what God has done here, we need to understand that we might not appreciate and understand what God is doing and how he is working in the world and working in his people to conform men to his image and his likeness. Now, respecting God's elect and a certain group of people, we know that all things, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So not everything is good for everybody, but it's good. That's a qualifying statement. It's good for his elect. The Lord says in Jeremiah 29, 11, that his thoughts towards them are thoughts of peace. God has thoughts of peace towards his people, towards his elect, and not of evil, to give an expected end. God has an expected end for his people, which we know is eternal fellowship with them in glory. So, there's a lot of trouble between here and there, but it's all working for good to those that love God. So when we look at God's instructions in Genesis 1, here's some of the things that he says, particularly on day 6, we read that man is supposed to have dominion over all things. God made man male and female. He made them in his image. They are to be fruitful and multiply. And we read about what food God gave man. And uh, we are reread read what men are supposed to do, what Christians are supposed to do. So I'm going to pick it up with there. We're going to look at those things that I just uh, gave us a list of and see how that is going with respect to men. So in verse 26, he says that they are to have dominion over all the earth and over all the fish and over all the, the fowls of the air, everything that creepeth and over all the world. Man is supposed to have dominion over all things. So if I can just summarize that, you're supposed to make the world work for you. God has given us all these wonderful resources that we are supposed to utilize in such a way as to uh, allow men to go forth and populate the world. <clears throat> and as a simple example of that, you know, there are over 7 million, almost 8 million people living in the greater Bay Area. What do you do with that many people? You gotta get them water, you gotta feed them, you gotta give them shelter. You've got to heat their place in the house in the, in the wintertime. And so if you want to give everybody water, well, you're going to have to build dams. It's not rocket scientist stuff here. It doesn't rain enough in the Bay Area to give water to all these people. So what did the people do a long time ago? They built some dams up in the Sierras, brought the pipes across the uh, Central Valley, under the Bay, into the Pulgas Water Temple, and then we fill up the reservoirs here. So man has done what God has told them to do in terms of providing water. He's having dominion over all of the earth. 
in terms of food, he's got to cultivate fields, he's got to rotate crops, you know, he's got to uh, engage in animal husbandry, do all of the things that's required to feed the people. He's got to plant, he's got to harvest, he's got to work up systems to do that in an economical and productive way to feed almost 8 million people in the Bay Area, and that requires an entire infrastructure to get food from the field to your table. As far as shelter is concerned, well, you're going to have to plant some trees so you can cut them down and have lumber. You're going to have to dig up the earth and mine various elements so that you can get iron ore, you can make steel, you know, you can cut stone to make things and uh, put things together so you can have a house. Got to heat it, so that could mean wood pellets, that means more trees. It could be coal, that means mining, that could be oil and gas, and you might want to generate electricity. There's all sorts of things that people have to do consistent with having dominion over the world. God has told them to do that. But we live in a day and age now where men want to throw that on its head in a rebellious sort of way, and they are climate alarmists and say, well, by golly, we're going to destroy the earth. Somehow we're going to heat this planet up. Um, but then they changed their mind when they realized it really wasn't getting hotter. So they said, well, we went from global warming to climate change. So they keep flipping this stuff around, trying to throw things on their head. But really what it is, it's simply rebellion against God. It's simply rebellion against God. And last week I read Genesis chapter 8, verse 22, which I'm going to read again because if you'll read it and understand it and believe it and appreciate it, when people are talking about climate change, you're just like, you know, read your Bible. There's not going to be climate change. So in 822, it says, while the earth remained, this is God speaking to Noah. He says, while the earth remained, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Seed time and harvest. God is going to provide food to feed everybody on the planet as long as the earth remains. He says that here. So that's not something that we need to um, worry about. But men want to, as we read in Romans chapter 1, they want to deify animals. They want to put them on the same level as people. In some uh, countries, of course, they do that. In India, of course, they uh, lift up animals as some example of reincarnation. In the book of Exodus, you'll find out that the um, Egyptians there deified the ox, and so when Moses said they wanted to go out into the desert to um, sacrifice the ox to God, um, Pharaoh said, no, why don't you do that here? And Moses was like, that's not going to work. We are not going to sacrifice what you have deified in Egypt without causing some trouble. So we need to go out three days into the desert. So man does that. He lifts up animals. And so we have these animal rights organizations where people... Um, through the legislative process, are trying to put animals on the same level as people. Now, that's not to mean that we're not supposed to treat things in a, in a um, responsible, compassionate, loving way. You've got to take care of your animals. You've got to take care of this earth so that you will have, uh, you will continue to be able to use it in a productive way that glorifies God. But with respect to lifting up um, animals and the level of man, God tells us very plainly in 1 Corinthians 15, 13, that guess what? Animals and man, they're different. He says, all flesh is not the same flesh. There is one kind of flesh of man and another kind of beasts and another of fishes and another of birds. So in 1 Corinthians 15, he's telling us back here in Genesis chapter 1, there's a difference between these animals here and man. Only man was created in the image of God. And in the formation of man, that's the only one that God formed out of the dust of the earth and then blew the breath of life into his nostril, and he became a living soul. So men are different. Only men are in the image of God, and only men are told to have dominion over 
the earth. Now, with respect to having dominion over things and someone having dominion over you, again, we can appreciate this with respect to animals. In James 3.3, the Lord says, you know, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. People want to speak of evolution. What an interesting thing it is that a horse would evolve to fit a man perfectly upon his back <laughs> that he could ride into battle. Um, but we put bits in their mouths and put a bridle on them that we can steer them, that they may serve man, that they may serve us. So consider the ox. In the scripture, the ox is a symbol of a servant. And think about what kind of damage it can do if it is not yoked and directed by its master. It will go amok along your field. It will not uh, create the furrows in a straight line. It will destroy your crops. It will knock down fences, and it will gore people. It's got to have someone that has dominion over it. So without having dominion over it, it is but a brute beast, a natural brute beast, and it must be yoked and directed. This is true of man also. When man is left to himself, when he is self-willed, we see what ends up in the scripture here. Like I said, murder, mayhem, and misery. If man could destroy the planet, and he can't because God says it's going to remain, if he could destroy the planet, he would do so. Um, one of the books uh, my children had to read in high school, which I read a number of times because I like it so much, it's a parable. The title of the book is Lord of the Flies, and it's a story about a bunch of young school kids who are dropped onto an island, and the question is, um, where does sin come from? The author attempts to answer the question, where does sin come from? Well, it comes from men. <laughs> By the end of the book, the island is on fire. They've already killed one boy, and everybody's ganging up on the last kid, and they're fixing to murder him. And at the very end of the book, um, they are rescued by naval officers. And so you think to yourself, oh, this is wonderful. The boys are going to be rescued, and so they are taken off the island and placed on a naval vessel, which is in the middle of a world war. <laughs> so they go from the fire to the frying, um, frying pan to the fire. So that's what men do, absent God's grace in their life in particular and in the world in general. God restrains sin in the whole planet, and he has to so that seed time and harvest will remain, so that men will continue to be provided for until such time as God is ready to harvest. So when man is yoked to God and in his service, he bears fruit to God. When God works in man to will and to do of his good pleasure, in other words, God is working in that man because he's yoked to them, he works and man to will and to do of his good pleasure. God is glorified, and man bears fruit. But the natural man, I'm speaking post-fall, is someone who wants no direction from God. He hates God and wants nothing to do with him. So absent the direction of God, man is as a natural brute beast. And that is language that comes straight out of Scripture. In Second Peter chapter 2, the Lord says here about how he knows how to uh, deliver godly people out of temptation and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. But speaking of men in particular, he says, but chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise governments. These are people, their flesh is unbridled. Uh, presumptuous are they, they are self-willed. 
They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. And then he gets down, he says, whereas angels which are greater in power and might, bringing not railing accusation against them before the Lord. These people are, um, are, are unbridled in terms of their uh, lust, lusty affections. In verse 12 he says, but these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. So he's speaking about people that are behaving themselves and acting like a natural brute beast whose end is destruction. They are made to be um, destroyed. Now this says they despise governments, and we know that God has set up all governments. In Romans chapter 13, verse 1, he talks about that. He says, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. So God has set up or, uh, governmental structures, but men are in rebellion to the governmental structures because they are ultimately in rebellion to God. They do not want to be, um, they do not want God to have dominion over them. In verse 2 he says, Whosoever resists the power resists the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to them damnation. So, Men are in rebellion to other men. They're in rebellion to government, and they're in rebellion to God because they do not want God to have dominion over them. Now, using this same analogy, in a broad sense, not only are men in rebellion to governments, but governments, which we see today, are in rebellion against God. So in a global organized sense, we see that governments are in rebellion to God. In Psalm chapter 2, Verse 1, I'll read the first couple of verses. It says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. This is governmental systems. They take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, which is Christ, um, saying, verse 3, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. That is like the horse endeavoring to spit the bridle, spit the bit and the bridle out of its mouth because it does not want to be led by the rider on its back. Governments are saying here, let us break there. That would be God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit's bands asunder. Let us cast their cords away from us because we don't want God to rule over us. And the people say that very plainly. We will not have this man, Christ, reign over us. So rebellion is not just individualistic, but it's global from the top down. And so we see ourselves in a world today uh, where man's rebellion against God is manifest, that he would not have God to reign over him. God will not, does not want to have dominion over all the earth because now he wants to lift things up and tell us that we have a carbon footprint that's problematic and so we should not be out there um, utilizing the things the way God has told us to, nor do we want to be subject to the dominion of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, speaking of Jesus Christ, he was ever obedient to and ever did the will of his Father. So he himself is following the instructions of Genesis chapter 1. Not only does he have dominion over all things, all things were given into his hand, but also he was subject to the will and authority of his Father for which he was willfully obedient. And there's an adage in the military that says, if you cannot follow, you cannot lead. And we read that in Hebrews where the Lord says that he was made perfectly qualified by what he suffered by how he was obedient. He became perfectly qualified to be the captain of our salvation. So that is the first thing that I wanted to mention with respect to having dominion. God's man is in rebellion to that commandment to do that. Um, the next thing we read about is in verse 27 of Genesis chapter 1, where we read that God creates man in his image. Now, 
That's an image that man would utterly pervert. Scripture says that God made them, man, male, and female, and he made nothing in between. I don't mean to get technical, but he made them male and female. There was nothing in between. So he made them M, comma, F, not L, G, B, T, Q, I, A, plus. God did not do that. That's man's perversion of the simplicity, the binary context in which God made man. He made them male and female. And so man says in his rebellion, you will not define me in a binary sort of way as either male or female. I will tell you and I will tell the world um, what I am. Now, God has created men, male and female, in a complementary way, so it works better as in terms of our relationship, and it's a complementary way with respect to man being in the image of God. When a couple comes together, together they are in the image of God. And we had talked about this in the previous um, um, sermon on Genesis, and so if you haven't heard the first couple ones, I'd recommend you see those. But man represents the intellect or wisdom, and the woman, the emotions, or love. And so these are two defining characteristics of God, wisdom and um, emotion. And so rebellious man says that he will define himself, and not only will he do it, but he will be proud of it, and he'll make himself a flag that he can that represents his pride. And so we have these gay pride parades, gay pride flags, gay pride. I don't know if it's a week anymore or whether or not it's a month. But it's um, interesting that when man does that and flies that flag in God's face, how ignorant he is of what he is doing and his utter foolishness. He's created a flag that's got six colors on it, which is the number of man, as opposed to seven, which is what the rainbow has. And what color did he leave off of his gay pride flag? The color blue. What does the color blue represent in scriptures? It represents God's law. Go out in space, look at the planet. It looks blue because everything on this planet is subordinate and subject to the law of God. So man creates a flag, flies it in God's face, and he leaves out the color blue. Now he uses a rainbow because that means something to them, uh, so God is not... Um, going to destroy them. But if you read the details, God said he would not destroy the earth with a flood. In other words, he's not going to rain water on the earth. But then you roll over to Genesis 19. It did rain, but it rained fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. So a bow, you'll recall, is a weapon of war. So the symbol that they're using as though um, God somehow ordains and blesses their sin is a symbol of war, and they are literally calling God's judgment upon them. But God is patient and he's long-suffering, but that has a point where it will end. His mercy endures forever, but it doesn't say anywhere in Scripture that his patience and his long-suffering endures forever. You read in the book of Jeremiah where the Lord says, I am weary with your repenting, and he brings destruction down to Jerusalem. He's had enough of their sin. So the next thing we talk about has to do with God telling men um, to be fruitful and to multiply. So, again, this LGBTQ community, and this is an interesting thing, too. Um, when I think of gays, I always think of men first. But that's not the order that they presented here in their acronym, LGBTQ. They coincidentally follow the order, it appears, in Romans chapter 1, where it puts the woman as leaving the natural use of the body first, and then it talks about the men. 
I find that very interesting that what they throw up in God's face is the exact order it appears in Romans chapter 1. So man would redefine marriage, and we even took it to the Supreme Court where they redefined what a marriage was, and man has no, is not in any position to tell God what a marriage is. God says it's one man and one woman, but not so for them. For them, it's two men, uh, two women, or anything else in between, I suppose. Now, God told man to be fruitful and to multiply, to replenish the earth. And this is something simple. Again, I know I'm digging into deep biology here, but a homosexual relationship can never bear fruit. It can never bear fruit. So there we are again in disobedience and open rebellion to God. So in the opening chapters of Genesis, we've covered a lot of things where God establishes and ordains his creation to teach us about himself, to teach us about man, and to teach us the gospel if you stay within the framework of what he sets forth as good. And every bit of it is under attack in this world as man attempts to undermine everything that God sets up as good and what God sets up as truth. We read a number of times today where like kind begets like kind. Fish beget fish, birds birds, cattle cattle, giraffes giraffes, elephants elephants, men men. There is no such thing as evolution uh, in the Bible, and there's no such thing as evolution in this world. It's a fraud that's um, foisted on men to suggest that they came from an ape. And um, if you would do your homework, you would find that Nebraska man, Piltdown man, and Lucy that we read about in our biology books as kids are all a fraud. It's all a fraud, and they have been proven um, fraud. We talked about this maybe some time ago, but the scientists have found red blood cells and soft tissue in dinosaur bones. So the earth is not millions of years old. It's, it's as old as the Bible says it is. So again, this is the word of truth, but, God would, uh, but man would be in rebellion against everything that God has done. So God made a male and female, and it's a complementary relationship in the image of God. And the marriage between a man and a woman typifies the relationship between Christ, the bride, or the groom rather, and the woman, the bride. And that relationship and typification is all throughout the Bible. So to destroy the definition of a marriage is to bring under attack this typology that God has set before us here. The reproductive process between a man and a woman is similar to that which Christ creates in a Christian. When the seed of Christ comes upon a person and they become a new creature in Christ, um, very much like a woman has a new uh, person inside of her through the seed of the man. So God has ordained the reproductive process. He's ordained everything on this earth to glorify him and to teach about him. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the firmament his handiwork. So with respect to man, man, of course, would attempt to kill the baby. Man attempts to kill the gospel. Man attempts to destroy the, the, the Christian. Anything that is godly, man attempts to destroy. So with respect to man... Be fruitful and multiply? Uh, no, we're not going to do that. Marriage, one man and one woman? No, don't want any part of that. Two sexes, male and female? Uh, no. Image of God? No. Have dominion? No, we're not going to do any of that. So we see in man, after Genesis chapter 3, we see utter rebellion in men. After Genesis 3, and I want to make a point of that. It's after Genesis chapter 3. The, the sin that took place in Genesis chapter 3 is not as simple as we would have been led to believe. It's not a simple act of rebellion in Genesis 3. It's after Genesis 3, again, Genesis 4, where we get murder, uh, misery, and mayhem. So, whereas Adam's a type of Christ, we'll talk about that when we get there. So, the next thing is, what food was given to man to eat? In verse 29 of Genesis 1, it says, Every herb-bearing 
seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. So man was supposed to eat seed. And that's a theme that carries throughout the whole Bible where the seed is what? The seed is Christ. Galatians chapter 4, verse 16 is going to tell us that. And when we get into the covenant, in, uh, further into Genesis here, the covenant that was made with Abraham, you're going to find a detail about what is given to um, the Jews, the people that come out of Abraham, and what is given to them and their seed. There's two different promises. One's an unconditional covenant, and that's through Christ, and the other one's a conditional one. And you have to be able to separate those. And the key is the word seed. The seed is Christ. So you've got to keep that separate. The tree of life in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, obviously, that is Christ, is the tree of life. Because you eat that, and you will live. We are to feed on Christ. The Lord says that in John chapter 6, 53. If you don't eat on me, if you don't feed on me, there is no life in you. And so back in Genesis chapter 1, the Lord sets that principle forth for us, that we are to eat Christ. We are to eat the seed. So what does man eat now? Well, Genesis chapter 3, verse 18, you'll see that it changes. After the fall of man, after sin, he's to eat the herb of the field. There's no life in that. He's not permitted to eat from the tree of life. After the flood, God changes it and he opens it up a little bit. He's able to eat the green herb of the field. And he's also able to eat all of the um, animals. And we'll talk a little bit about what that means uh, when we get there. But the fact that he's able to now eat the green herb of the field... That's the food that God gave the beast of the field to eat in Genesis chapter 1. So man went from eating seed to just the herb. Now he can eat green herbs. So his diet has changed. And so non-Christians feed on the things of this world. Their eyes are, they feed on those things, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Those are the things that they chase after with. They want to fill their hearts and minds with an ungodly diet. Whereas the Christians are the ones who want to feed on Christ. And so the the world, these people reject Christ. And as the scripture says, they suffer leanness unto their souls. So where does the Christian fit into all this rebellion? And why do things seem like there's such a mess? Well, it's because the fall of man is part of the process whereby man is made in the image and, and likeness of God. Now, you recall when Jesus is in the garden, uh, the night that he's arrested, and he prays to his father, if it be possible, let this cup pass. What's the cup? It's the wrath of God. It's the cup of God's wrath. If it's possible, let this cup pass. And what was the answer? Obvious. It wasn't possible. He said, not my will according to your will. It was not possible that that cup would pass. Christ had to drink the cup of his Father's wrath. It's not possible that it would pass. In Revelation 13, 8, Jesus is referred to the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. The cross comes from Genesis 1, 1. It was always part of the process. When you get to Genesis 2, 17, when God is telling him about eating that tree of knowledge of good and evil, he says in verse 17, but of the tree... Of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. He doesn't say, if you eat it, you will die. Basically says, when you eat it, you're going to die. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Don't let anybody tell you that Adam and Eve eating of that tree took God by surprise. He's telling you right here. 
The day that you eat it, you're going to die. God knew he was going to eat it. So it's not a question of if, but when. In Genesis chapter 1, the first couple of three verses, uh, verse 6, as a matter of fact, we saw the cross in there. We saw that there was firmament. God made a firmament between the waters above and the waters below. And we talked about the waters above represent Christians and the water below represent uh, non-Christians, non-elect. And he put the firmament, the cross in between. That's what separates believers and non-believers is the cross. So the cross has always been in here. So get out your lawyer mind and read verse 26 and verse 27 of Genesis chapter 1 and compare those two verses. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God says, let us, us, that's the Godhead, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's his purpose statement. The Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is going to make man in the image of God. Man's going to be a tripart creature. He's going to have body, soul, and spirit. So you get down to verse 27, and it says, this is what God actually did. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Verse 27, he didn't do what he said he was going to do in verse 26. Verse 26, image and likeness. Verse 27, image only. He even repeats the word twice in verse 27. So what's it take to make man in the image and likeness in God? It takes the cross contemplated and understood and appreciated from day one in here. In Acts 2.23, it talks about Christ when it says, by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, Christ was crucified. He was taken by wicked hands and crucified. Determinate counsel. What counsel would that be? That would be the counsel in heaven where the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost agreed to do something to make God, to make man, excuse me, in his image and his likeness. It was a determinate counsel. The cross was always in there from the beginning. And so when you get to 2 Peter 1, 4, and it talks about us being partakers of the divine nature, you are a partaker of the divine nature because Christ is in you. Christ is the hope of glory, and he is in you, and that required the cross for that to take place. So from the very beginning, we saw that the cross was part of the process, and so all of this murder, um, misery, and mayhem is part of the process that God has ordained to make people in his image and his likeness. So what does the Christian do? Well, when he's regenerated by God, he is a new creature in Christ. And having their minds renewed, having the Christian's mind renewed, we keep things in their proper perspective. We know that the earth is temporal and that we are to use it, uh, we are to have dominion over it, and we are to use it to God's glory and do what he tells us to do with it. But we know that it's not going to last. So we view the world through a biblical lens. We don't get upset and excited about all the craziness that's going on in the world because it's all ordained by God. We understand that God created the world to glorify himself and to support life until the final harvest. Genesis 8.22, while the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. That's a statement about you'll have something to put in your mouth and eat, but it's also a statement. It's a spiritual truth. So when the final harvest of people come in, then God will destroy the earth and all of its material creation when the last harvest comes in. And God will bring in a new heaven and a new earth. And the Lord tells us that in 2 Peter chapter 3 about that. He's going to burn this place up. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, he says, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, 
in the which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works thereof, when the works that are therein shall be burned up. All right, you know what's going to happen here. So he's asked the good question here. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth Righteousness. So that's what the Christian does. You set your heart and minds and affections on things that are above. And you keep things in perspective that are down here on the earth. So in obedience to God, we exercise dominion over all the earth to meet the needs of men, which is the pinnacle of God's creation, as God has told us to do. And spiritually speaking, we endeavor by grace to have dominion over our thoughts and emotions, which Scripture says, whereby we cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So we take these outward instructions about having dominion over the world and we turn them inward uh, towards our spirit that we would bring into uh, captivity these, these thoughts that we have and that we would... Let not sin reign in our mortal bodies, that we should obey the lust thereof. And through the Spirit, we want to mortify the deeds of the flesh. So having dominion out the world is um, symbolic or typifying what we need to do with respect to our own lives and our own hearts and reign in our mortal bodies and reign in our sin. So with respect to seed time and harvest of Genesis 8.22, we are to plant the seeds of the gospel. The Lord says in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, that one plants, one waters, and God gives the increase, and God will harvest in his time. So we go forth into the world as ambassadors to Christ. We teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost, teaching them whatsoever things Christ has taught us. So in a spiritual sense, we are being fruitful and we are multiplying, which is what God told us to do in Genesis chapter 1. Like kind begets like kind. Christians, through the preaching of the gospel, beget other Christians when God places that seed of Christ in their hearts. And so with the seed of Christ in us, the word of God in us, we take our eyes off of the world and rather than be like the self-willed natural brute beast fitted for destruction, made to be taken and destroyed, we who are yoked to Christ do his will, serve and glorify him, and present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Amen. Amen.